You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Of the title of this morning's message, The Gospel of God, um, it is the good news that God has provided salvation for the sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's not just good news, church, it is great news. It is glorious news. It is for uh, those who repent and believe that there is a, a salvation from the, the gathering storm of God's judgment on the last day. This is not just a gospel, it is the gospel of God. There is no other gospel, there is no other salvation, no other name under heaven by which we are saved but through God's Son, Jesus Christ. If you and I were to gather and we would spend the next 10,000 or so years discussing a plan of salvation for our world, uh, we would have never come up with a gospel like what we learn about uh, in the Bible, that God would send his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to rescue us, that he would be born of a virgin, born in a manger, that he would grow up, that he would live the law of God perfectly throughout his whole life when we break it every day. That he would go to the cross in our place to die. That he would take all the sins of all who would believe in him on himself. That he would die, that he would be buried, that he would be raised on the third day. So that all, so that whoever would call on his name would be saved. Who would have designed such a gospel? Steve Lawson correctly writes, no denomination could have designed it. No church could have crafted it. No seminary could have scripted it. No board of elders could have come up with this plan. Only God could have come up with this solution. And it is why to receive the gospel is to receive God himself. And to reject this gospel is to reject God himself. Because it is the gospel of God. Now, this book of Romans contains the most comprehensive Uh, explanation of the gospel in all of scripture. Paul carefully lays out the goodness of this news from uh, the depravity of our sins to the heights of divine grace. It is filled with gospel truth. And I want you to notice seven truths about the gospel in these uh, opening verses this morning. First of all, we begin with the messenger of the gospel, in this case, who is Paul, the apostle Paul. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. When we uh, write letters today, we typically sign our name at the end of a letter, but as you may know, in the New Testament letters, they always put their name first, who the letter was from, and in this case, it is Paul. And there's great significance, I think, in each of the phrases that Paul used to describe himself. First, he calls himself a servant of Christ, which literally should be translated a slave. Of Christ. Roman society at this time depended on slavery in a variety of ways. We, uh, there were doctors and lawyers who were slaves in the Roman Empire. There were teachers. There were civil servants. Some of them 
uh, treated badly by their, their masters, not, but not all of them. But there was one thing that they all shared together, and that is that they belonged to their master 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. They had, at the end of the day, no will of their own, but they lived for the pleasure of their master. Now, Paul, when he wanted to pick a metaphor that would describe his relationship with Christ, he was eager to say to the people, I am a slave of Jesus, a slave. That is true of all who follow Jesus. You remember Paul addressed the Corinthians later on. He said, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. At your salvation, you were purchased, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We once were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to sin. But now we've been set free by the work of Christ. And the irony is that when Christ sets us free from the slavery of sin, he calls us to a kind of a royal liberty of slavery to him. The most important thing about my life, Paul says, is that Jesus is my Lord and I am his slave. Is that true of you? Paul goes on to say, I was called to be an apostle. He mentions that again in verse 5, through whom, that is Jesus, we have received apostleship. So on, on the one hand, he's a bond slave to the Lord Jesus, but on another hand, he's an apostle. He is one sent. He is like an ambassador who spoke on behalf of a king. It's interesting, Jesus uh, I think talking about the authority of apostles, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 16, he says, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. There was an authority given by Jesus to apostles. People sometimes say things like, I trust what Jesus says, but I'm not so sure I trust what Paul says. You understand that's very problematic because almost everything that we know about Jesus comes from the apostles, like Paul. And the New Testament church was built on the foundation of the apostles, Ephesians tells us. And so Jesus reminds us here in the gospel that the apostolic writings, like Paul, like Romans, carries the delegated authority of Jesus himself. So you can't say, I agree with Jesus, but I don't agree with Paul. Paul is speaking to the Romans, and he reminds us, with the authority of Jesus Christ to us. In fact, he says he was set apart for the gospel of God. Interesting, just as God had said to the prophet Jeremiah a long time ago, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul, in similar language, says that God has set him apart, set him apart from birth to proclaim this gospel. If I were to say to you today, I've got some good, good news for you, you might be interested in what I have to say. If I were to say to you that this great news I have comes from God himself, you might say, no, is that guy all together up there? But if you were fairly certain that I hadn't lost my mind, that I wasn't kind of crazy, you would probably want to hear this. This is Paul saying, I've been sent to you to proclaim the gospel of God with the authority of Jesus Christ. And beloved, we need to hear this gospel. Notice, secondly, the source of the gospel, which is the scriptures. This is God's gospel, but notice verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So it comes from God, 
His word in the scriptures. But it's also, I think, to remind us this gospel is not new. This isn't a new gospel. This is the same gospel. It's been proclaimed from the very beginning all in the Old Testament as well, numerous times. Sometimes when we talk about the Old Testament, we think of it as something in the past that we don't need to look to at all. We think of it as law. And we think of the New Testament as gospel, as though there were no law in the New Testament or no gospel in the Old Testament. That's simply not true, church. Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. And here he essentially says that the gospel of all prior revelations of God in the Old Testament, uh, that the goal of the Old Testament, rather, was the gospel. It's been taught, he says, throughout, throughout the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the, the first announcement of of the gospel at the fall to uh, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 which speaks of the, the coming of John the Baptist as Christ's forerunner. This gospel is the good news that has been announced by God from the very beginning. In Luke 24, Jesus affirmed this. He said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. It's about him. So this is very important because Paul is going to argue in chapter 4, for example, that the way Abraham in the Old Testament, all the way back in Genesis, the way Abraham was saved is the same way that you and I are saved today. It is through this one gospel, whether a person lives before the cross or after the cross, the only way that we're saved is by looking to Jesus Christ in faith. Church, we, we have to get this gospel right. Because there is no other rope that we can cast to lost men and women and boys and girls. There is no other way than they can be saved but through this gospel of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the subject of the gospel, who is Jesus Christ. Notice he, he says that the scriptures teach us that the gospel of God is about, verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. We just sang it. His name is Jesus our Lord. In these uh, couple of verses here, Paul really provides for us with, with an entire Christology, if you will, in, in, in 28 Greek words. Reminding us that this good news is about Jesus, that he is the subject and the substance of all of the gospel teaches. Notice the parallels between these two uh, verses, parallels between verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says he was descended. Verse 4, it says he was declared. Uh, verse 3, he was the seed of David. Verse 4, he was the son of God. Verse 3, he was according to the flesh. Verse 4, he was according to the Spirit. There are numerous references here, both direct and indirect, to Jesus' birth, to his uh, death, his resurrection, his reign over the universe. But notice just a, a couple of observations. Take the two titles that were given to him, the seed of David, verse 3, and the Son of God, verse 4. Here you have reminders that Jesus was 100% human, and yet at the same time, verse 4, he was the Son of God, 100% God. 
Notice verse 3. He was descended from David. He descended to us. Jesus took on flesh. He was born in a manger. He was born in weakness and humiliation. But then verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power through the resurrection. Lloyd-Jones helps us here, cut to the chase. The Lord Jesus Christ, he writes, was the Son of God before he took on flesh. He's always the Son of God before the incarnation and from all eternity. Where then is the variation, he writes? It's in the form that he assumes, the form. What we've been told in verse 3 is that when he came into the world, he did not come in as the Son of God with power. He came in as the Son of God, yes, but not with power. In other words, when he came as a babe, the power of the Son of God was veiled in the flesh. But in the resurrection, he is declared to be God, the Son of God in power. And it's here that we realize how powerful he is. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was announcing to the whole world Jesus' sonship. That he's the Son. How do we know Jesus is the Son of God? We know it because it was the testimony of God himself who raised him from the dead. He declared him to be. And here's where this is headed. Paul is not saying here, I don't think, that the the resurrection is a demonstration of God's power, which is true, but I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not saying, I don't think that resurrection is a powerful demonstration of Christ's claims, though that is true. No, I think what Paul is telling us here in, in this is that the gospel of God is a declaration that Jesus is the sovereign Son of God. This is God himself declaring this to us. As we're going to see later in Romans 1... Paul makes the point that God has manifested himself so clearly to every human being that nobody has an excuse for denying him. And and that's important, really important for some of you who have yet to believe today. Perhaps some of you are like Thomas and you say, well, you know, unless I see his hands and the nail prints in his hands or I see his, his feet, then I'm not going to believe. Understand that that is not going to hold in the judgment before God. Because, why? Because God has declared to all men that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the powerful Son of God through the resurrection. Paul is, in fact, saying here, I'm not the one declaring to you Jesus is the Son of God. God has already declared it to you in his resurrection. Jesus is the subject of God's gospel, and you and I need to submit to him as Lord. Which leads forth to the goal of the gospel, uh, which is the obedience of faith. In other words, what is the gospel for? What is the purpose of it? Uh, What what does it mean for for my life? The answer is in verse 5. Jesus Christ, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith. That's an interesting phrase. It's also found at the end of Romans, chapter 16, verse 26. It's interesting because in Romans, Paul insists, perhaps more strongly than anywhere else, that salvation is by faith alone. And so what does this mean by obedience of faith? I think Paul is emphasizing something very important that, that sometimes is neglected today in 
uh, in our sharing of the gospel and our witnessing and our preaching and our teaching. Namely, that in the gospel, God commands us to obey. To believe it, to accept it, but to submit our lives to it. The gospel calls us to obedience, which consists of faith. John Slott, I think, summarized it well. He said this, Paul looked for a total, unreserved commitment to Jesus Christ, which he called the obedience of faith. A total, unreserved commitment to Christ. That's the call of the gospel, the obedience of faith. You may remember how Paul addressed in his sermon to the folks on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, he said this at one point in the sermon. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands them to be an obedient, an obedience of faith. And again, this, this is important because a lot of contemporary Christianity flows, I, I think, possibly from a neglect of this by failing to present the gospel as a command to be obeyed, we often minimize sin and we minimize discipleship. We minimize what this really means to follow. We turn the gospel into an easy believism where all you got to do is believe. You just have to accept Jesus as your Savior. You don't really have to submit to Him as your Lord. That's not the gospel of God. If there is no obedience... Paul is reminding us there is no faith. It's just talk. You may have raised your hand. You may have walked an aisle. You may have gotten wet. You may have signed a card, whatever you did. But true saving faith immediately comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ to an obedience of faith. This is, I think, exactly what Paul is teaching here. The purpose of the gospel is to bring about obedience in my life. You, you cannot believe in the Lord Jesus at all unless you believe in him as your Lord as well as your Savior. It's very much tied together. Now, we note this, that such a call to obey comes in the context of the gospel, which is the good news, right? The good news of God. So how can sinful man obey God? What are we told here in verse 5? We're told that it's only by the grace of God that he can. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. James Montgomery Boyce explains it like this. Paul is stressing the lordship of Christ and the necessity of obeying God in response to the demands of the gospel. At the same time, he is also keenly aware that those who respond to the gospel do so only because God is already graciously at work in them. I wonder if Paul was thinking in, in these moments about his own testimony. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights in our Wednesday night Bible studies at 6 p.m. during the week. Uh, right here in the sanctuary, but I wonder if he was thinking about his own testimony. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, he writes this. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Like all people who are saved, Paul could never forget what he had been apart from grace. Self-righteous, 
cruel, persecuting the church. And yet when Christ came to him on that Damascus road, everything changed. How could one who was so rebellious against God and Jesus be brought to an obedience of faith? There's only one answer to that, church, and it is the grace of God. The grace of God came to me, as we sang earlier. Notice briefly here the scope of the gospel. The scope of the gospel is the nations. It's found at the end of verse 5. For the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul will say a few verses later down in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what he's affirming there is that the gospel is for everybody. Aren't you thankful for that? That the scope of the gospel is, is a universal. Paul here was a, a Jew. He was a zealous Jew, zealous for God, loved his fellow citizens, wanted them to be saved. We're going to see him express that desire. But at the same time, he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and he was committed to world missions. This is kind of explosive material, I think, for this particular time. And we could be transported back a couple thousand years to Jerusalem to realize that this was probably heresy in most Jewish folks' ears, that the gospel was for Gentiles too. But sadly, in a way, Sinclair Ferguson argues this, it's heresy in the ears of a lot of Christians today, that the gospel is for everybody. Perhaps you've heard stories from the mission field of uh, missionaries going to the tribes, tribal chiefs, and they're hearing the gospel for the first time, and then they say to the missionaries, when, when did this happen? When did this good news happen? And they say something like, well, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And the tribal chief says, why did it take you so long to bring it? I wonder even if some of our neighbors wonder the same thing. Why has it took you so long to bring it? The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time, right? It's for all. For the person who works beside you tomorrow, it's for her. It's why Paul would later say in this chapter, he's under obligation to bring this gospel to everyone. This is an obligation all of us should feel. It's why we're committed as a church to world missions. To take the gospels to our neighbors, but also to the nations. Because God has commanded it to be. Connected to this is the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel, which is the honor of Christ's name. Notice verse 5 again. For the sake, that phrase, for the sake of his name. It's interesting. The NIV puts that phrase at the beginning of the sentence. And the, the ESV puts it in the middle of the sentence. But... Uh, Actually, in, in the Greek, it comes at the end of the sentence. And it's kind of, a, I think, meant to form a bit of a climax for us. Why did Paul desire to bring the gospel to the nations? What was his motivation? It was for the glory of Christ, the honor for the sake of his name. We, we read a moment ago, Philippians 2 i refer you to the end of that again. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It, 
if God desires that every knee bow before Jesus and every tongue confess him as Lord, don't you think we should desire that same thing as well, church? This is the goal. This is the climax of the gospel, that Christ would be known, embraced, worshipped, honored, and obeyed by all people. The highest motives for missions and evangelism is not obedience to the Great Commission, though that's a great reason and something we should be motivated by. It's not the main reason. It's also evangelism missions. Not it's also not motivated purely by love of lost people. Again, that's a that's a good motivation, but that's not the main thing. The highest goal for our evangelism and missions is the glory of Jesus Christ, the sake of His name. But we're not evangelizing for the sake of our name. I hope not. We're not evangelizing for the sake of our church's name. We go because of the sake of His name. We go out as John described. This is 3 John, the letter of John, verse 7. They have gone out for the sake of His name. You know, those simple words can transform a person's life. For the sake of His name. Whatever you do tomorrow, and you wake up and you start to head out of your day, you head off to work or you go to school or you go to the gym or you go whatever uh, you're doing, the garden... And maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, this is another, another Monday. Is there any uh, point to all this madness and any meaning to all of this thing? Paul says, here's a motivation for you to live by. Live for the sake of his name. Not your name, but for his. The honor of Christ's name is a worthy goal for your life of all that you do and all that you are. The, the goal of the gospel is the honor of Christ's name. Let's look briefly, finally, at the recipients of the gospel, uh, which we note here is Rome and us. Rome and us. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about the blessings that are described in those couple of verses. For those who do receive this gospel, who receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, that brings about the obedience of faith. Uh, first of all, notice that, that phrase, they belong to Jesus Christ. That's a, a wonderful phrase. In some ways, that is the essential definition of what a Christian is. Someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. Do you belong to Him? This makes all of the difference, church. This is where we get our very identity today. If you're thinking about these things and you're, you're struggling with these things, you are not who you are because of your sexuality. Your identity is not found in your sexuality. Your identity is not found in your gender. Your identity is not found in your race. These are not things that ultimately define us. What ultimately defines us is our relationship with God. And for a Christian, his main identity is that I belong to Jesus Christ. Can you say that? Are you his? Is he your Lord? If you don't belong to him, then you are not a Christian, regardless of whatever you're professing to be. 
The Christians at Rome, like all Christians, he, he goes on to say another phrase, they're loved by God. What a wonderful phrase. Christians are people whom God has set his love on. Not because they are worthy of such love. The, the only explanation of why the Lord loves loved them was that he simply, he loved them. Paul, Paul would later say in Romans 5, 8, great verse to memorize, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, there's nothing more significant than to be loved by God. This is a saving love, an eternal love. This is when you have received Christ and you become his child and he loves you. Notice those who receive the gospel, another phrase, are called to be saints. Called to be saints. Just as Paul, in verse 1, was set apart for the gospel, we've been set apart to live for Christ, to live a holy life. Robert Haldane puts it like this, they were saints because they were called, and they were called because they were beloved by God. And then finally, note that phrase, grace and peace. Grace and peace. They were saved by the grace of God, and now they are living by that grace. Grace is characterizing their life, and therefore they have peace. Peace there, I think, should be read peace from God. A peace that comes from Him. An eternal peace, an internal peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Jesus Christ. This inexhaustible supply of grace that we can come and drink from for all of eternity. And this inexhaustible supply of peace that, that guards and sustains us. This is what comes to those who receive the gospel. Anybody give testimony to receiving these things today? I want to ask you, does there need to be a response in your heart today to the gospel? Do you have the grace and peace of God in your life? Do you belong to Jesus? Is that, is that true? Do you believe the gospel? Have you received grace that has brought about the obedience of faith in your life? Are you living for the sake of his name? Or are you living for your own sake, your own name? This is more than an invitation today. You understand that. It's more than an invitation because the gospel of God, this is God commanding us to leave the darkness of sin behind, commanding us to leave it behind and to come into his into the light of His grace. And the good news of this is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you come today? Heavenly Father, we thank You uh, for the, the gospel of, of God. Thank you for giving us this good news. Lord, as we process and think about all that we've heard today and what your spirit may be saying and applying to our lives, Lord, we pray that you would bring about an obedience of faith in our hearts. For those that may need to respond to this call for the first time, for salvation, Lord, 
We pray that today would be the day when they hear this gospel, command, and they turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And we pray for our own lives, Lord, as we think about the implications of all of this, that we would be those who belong to you, those who are slaves to Jesus, those who obey him and follow him. Lord, do this work in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.